Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, joined again by my co-host, Brianne, as we dig in to the complex energy and climate issues that we are facing in the policy and legal realm. Brianne, great to be with you. Tee up our conversation for this week. Yeah, Neil, I am super excited about this week's podcast. We are joined here by Phil Goldberg. He is an attorney specializing in climate litigation. Many of you probably already know who he is. He serves right now as special counsel of the Manufacturers Accountability Project and is the managing partner of the DC office of Shook, Hardy & Bacon. So Phil, super pumped to have you here. Would you mind walking us through sort of what you do at the Manufacturers Accountability Project and some of what you're hoping to accomplish in this space and climate litigation, which I think you argue is best suited to be addressed, not in the courtroom? That's right. And first of all, Brianne and and Neil, thank you so much for having me on the program today. This is a great program and very educational and enjoyable. And so really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk to you guys about what I think is, is frankly, you know, a very concerning and dangerous way that some people are trying to go about dealing with climate change. I mean, I will say that we all recognize that we need to deal with climate change. We all recognize that we need to figure out how to source and use energy in ways that are both sustainable for the planet and sustainable for our way of life. And that takes a lot of innovation. It takes a lot of smart policymaking, but what it doesn't take are lawsuits. And that's what the Manufacturer Accountability Project is all about. We're trying to help communities that might I bring some of these lawsuits, understand what the risks are, what the downsides are, and why it's not just an easy out to say, okay, let's just blame somebody else and see what happens. We really need to figure out together how we're going to address this shared challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And as I understand it, you know, as of this summer, at least two dozen state and local governments have launched just a barrage of climate lawsuits going against energy companies and essentially trying to force them to pony up and pay for local climate impacts. And you argue, that that's not the right course of action. What, I guess, in layman's terms, what is? Well, what is, is innovation. What is, is trying to figure out how we're going to source and use energy more effectively and more efficiently. The problem with these lawsuits, and this goes back, and they've been trying this for 20 years, and it's been up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, you know, the last time around said, you know, these are not the kinds of issues that we can decide in the courts. The courts can't hold hearings. They can't make policy decisions. You know, if there's a decision to make energy more expensive, for example, I mean, that's one of the things that the people bringing these lawsuits have said they want to do. They want to raise the price of energy. That's part of their policy platform. And they're hoping these lawsuits are going to be able to do that for them. And the courts, you know, are not the places to be able to do that because that's, it's outside of the traditional checks and balances of, you know, the legislative branch of government, the, the, the regulatory branch of government, that where we as people have our say in our democracy, they want to step outside of all that and be able to drive their solutions in the courts. But that's why the Supreme Court, you know, 10 years ago explained that these aren't the kinds of issues that we can decide in the courts. These aren't the kind of issues that you can decide through you know, rules of evidence and traditional things that courts are really good at, which is personal injury litigation and class action and trying to make sure that we're righting certain wrongs when someone has actually done something wrong and there's standards and there's regulations and there's understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And if you're wrong and you hurt somebody, you got to pay. Here, 
there are no standards. There are no objective things saying, hey, selling us the energy we all need every day to heat our homes, to turn on our lights, to drive our cars. Those are not things that's objectively wrong. In fact, it's objectively right. We need that kind of stuff. And so to make that liability inducing is not something that the courts are very good at. And that's why this can't be decided in the courts. These are really issues that need to be decided in the policymaking branches of government, which are Congress and the federal regulators. Yeah, Phil, I I totally agree with you. We need federal legislative guidance in this arena. But one of the criticisms is, well, we can't have a conversation about climate change or carbon mitigation at the federal level because of politics, because everything breaks down because of politics. And there's this assumption that one party cares about climate change and the environment and the other party doesn't. And what I find is so interesting is here you are, you're someone who's making a legal and substantive case for why this ought to be dealt legislatively and not in the courts. But from what I know about you, your background, you're someone who is described to be a committed environmentalist and a political Democrat. Can you talk a little bit about how that political polarization is leading to bad decision making? like trying to pursue legislative solutions through the court process. Well, I could tell you how political polarization is ruining our country all the way around. (laughs) But this is only one circumstance where that might be. I think there's a significant majority of Americans who are in the center and who are maybe slightly right of center, maybe slightly left of center, but they want government to work. They want the solutions to be what helps them live their lives better every day. They're not necessarily ideologically pursuing an agenda sort of irrespective of real life consequences. And I think that's what this litigation is part of. I mean, there are some people that want to drive this litigation because of, a, of their ideology. And there are some that may oppose it on ideological grounds. But by and large, most of us are saying, hey, we get this. We get that climate change is real. We get that climate change needs to be dealt with. And we get that we need to do it in a smart way. And we, we need to do it now. Those are the things that I think we can all agree on. Where we disagree is on solutions. And that's where we, you know, we're coming in saying, you don't solve these things through lawsuits. You solve these things through better policy. You solve these things through innovation. You solve these things through doing things differently than we're doing now. And just laying blame and trying to make somebody make this somebody else's problem or somebody else's fault isn't a way to get things done. To your point about passing policy solutions and things like that, I completely agree with you. Do you think that's likely though, given the results of the last midterm elections? We're seeing, obviously, Democrats holding the Senate, Republicans holding the House, and the, really the risk of potentially not a lot getting done under Biden in the next two years. Well, maybe I'm just an eternal optimist, but it's possible that now both parties have a stake in getting things done on a whole host of issues, not just on climate, because now they're shared power. And sometimes that has been the secret to getting some really important things done, as long as people are willing to meet in the center and, and compromise. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, when I was working up on the Hill, we used to pride ourselves in trying to get things done. I know people would, you know, stake out their positions, but then it would always be about how do we come together and get things done for the American people. And now it seems that people were rewarded for just staking out positions and sticking to them and not getting things done. And that's what's really dangerous. And so hopefully now that the country seems to have said, frankly, over the course of, of a number of elections, we really want you to actually focus on what we want done. We don't want ideologues. We, we want people who are going to get things done for us and make government work. And part of making government work is going to be addressing the climate issues that we're facing and doing it in a smart way, not reflexively, not ideologically, but in a way that actually can get things done. And so if by having shared power helps us do that, I'm all for that. 
Phil, you look way too young to have uh, worked on the Hill 20 or 30 years ago, but uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. So walk me and quite frankly, our listeners through what you're working on specifically. So the core legal case right now involves the city of Baltimore and complicated issues around jurisdiction and whether these really complex legal issues should be dealt with at the state level or the federal level. Is that the correct understanding of the questions at bay here? Is this more jurisdictional than substantive? What are some of the core legal elements at play here? Just fill us in on this because this seems like it's a much bigger story than what's been noted in the press so far. You know, that's a great question, Neil. This litigation goes back 20 years and they first tried it. And it's basically like, this is like a, a legal laboratory. Let's figure out all these different ways we can try to you know, present a lawsuit and see if any of it sticks, right? And so they tried 20 years ago to file federal public nuisance law against utilities, seeking injunctive relief in the federal courts. And that's what went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not. So then they went back and they said, well, how do we avoid the Supreme Court precedent? And they said, okay, well, let's try to create state lawsuits and sue under state public nuisance law and sue different types of defendants. We're going to go after the producers of oil and gas, and we're going to do this in a slightly different way. And so what's happened is the defendants in these cases said, wait, wait a second, this is exactly like the cases we saw at Supreme Court dismissed you know, 10, 12 years ago. And just because they're being presented different doesn't mean they're really different. That means they're just being packaged differently. And, and frankly, the people behind this have acknowledged that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, they have a whole report out about how this was their whole plan was to try to figure out how to mask their federal claims and under state law. So the courts right now are trying to say, are these really state cases what you've actually, as you've said it in your complaints? Or if we look at the gravamen or the crux of the issues, are there really federal interstate issues that really have to go to the federal courts. And that's what has been the debate for the last five years. There's two dozen of these lawsuits. It's not just, you know, Baltimore or Boulder. There's 20 some odd lawsuits that are out there and they're all the exact same. There's nothing specific about who they're suing or where they're suing or what communities they're suing on behalf of. Some of these lawsuits named one company, some named 10, some 30. It's all a political decision on who to sue and how to bring it. And actually, in my mind, underscores why this is really a federal policy issue rather than even a, a state court issue. But ultimately, we need to have a one size fits all solution. And the only way to do that is through the federal courts. And so that's why right now the issue is, is a state court as written or is it really federal when you get to the kind of the crux of what's really at stake here? That's a great point. And I actually, I did want to ask you, what role do you think big oil and some of these fossil fuel companies do ultimately have to play in these climate remedies and things like that? You know, we're seeing lots of conversations at COP27 loss and damage estimates. And that's obviously um, a nation by nation conversation. But what financial obligations, if any, do you think they have? Look, we all have to be part of the solution. And the energy companies are no different. They are spending resources on trying to figure out how to source their energy in ways that is more sustainable for the climate and for, and for the planet. And that's a good thing. And we need that. And we need them to be focused on that. We need to explore all types of energy. This is really an all of the above solution. And because we need to do it, we need to do it quickly. At the end of the day, how the finances work out for all of this, that's probably a question above my pay grade, but it's something that Congress and the regulators you know, should be looking at and are looking at. And at the end of the day, I'm sure they'll come up with a solution that makes sense. And if it doesn't, it shouldn't pass. And if it does, it should pass. And so we just have to make sure we get to the place that makes sense for everybody and gets to a place where the impact 
on affordability is balanced into all of that. I mean, that's, I think, what if you get to what one of the issues with this litigation is, they want to drive up the cost of energy. And again, that's what they said they want to do, irrespective of how much it's going to cost us, irrespective of how much people can afford, businesses can afford, the competitive balance of businesses, and people that socioeconomically might not be able to withstand the impact of those price hikes. And that's why these are issues that Congress can figure out, that the regulators can figure out how much should that be? Where should it go? Should we even do that in the first place? That's the kind of stuff we need checks and balances. We need the people's representatives to be deciding. Well, Phil, thank you. This is obviously really heavy and complicated legal and substantive content. Very much appreciate you spelling this out so clearly for our listeners. For folks who regularly tune into the Plugged In podcast, you know that we like to have these kind of deep, substantive conversations with our guests, but we like to close with something light. And so in that vein, tell us something light in your life these days. No pressure. I'm a huge sports fan and watching my Nationals win the World Series back in 2019 was awesome. And I actually got a, my license plate on my car as Nats 19 so that I uh, can think about that every time I get in my car. I've seen you on uh, 395. <laughs> <laughs> Must be. But I grew up in North Jersey, so I'm, I'm a Knicks fan and a Giants fan a, a, as well. And so it's been fun to see a little bit of resurgence of teams like the Giants and the Knicks that have not been so good the past decade, <laughs> or in the Knicks case, a lot longer than that. Yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. And watching the Commanders obviously do well and beat the dreaded Eagles was also fun. So it's been, from a sports perspective, for me at least, it's actually been a little bit of a resurgence, even though the Nats are probably two or three years away from that. Do you believe in Daniel Jones? Can he get it done? You know, I believe that he's the best quarterback we have now. I'm a believer in Saquon Barkley for sure. And actually, Neil, um, I don't want to, I guess, to drive things home. Neil's son is participating in, what is this? The cross-country championships, you said? Yeah, he was the MVP of his cross-country team. So I think that would uh, qualify him to be on special teams, maybe. I don't think he's going to be running routes, a wide receiver. He's not a sprinter, but he can (laughs) run for distance. My daughter did that when she was in high school. She actually went to one states, went to nationals, did all that. It was a lot of fun. That is about the level I maxed out at at sports, soccer, cross country, all that. Um, And that's about the level of working knowledge I have when it comes to talking about sports on these podcasts. So thank you so much again, Phil, for joining us. Thank you to Neil for bringing it home with a fun fact and really appreciate your time. This has been great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate being on. Thanks so much again for listening to season three of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by me, Brianne Deppish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman.